represents a very dangerous and very effective destabilization campaign underway against this president, his administration, and his agenda. And what I hope that the president and his senior aides understand is that these forces are not just looking to delegitimize him. We often talk about that. Sure, they want to do that. They want to personally destroy him, destroy his presidency, and they would like to see the man in prison. I hope that the president understands I am not overstating this, having been a victim of this myself. They are out for blood. And the reason they have to destroy him is that Donald Trump is an alien organism that has been injected into the body politic by the American people to reform it. He must not be allowed to succeed. They have swarmed him. They have swarmed everybody around him in order to reject him out of the, the system, just like any alien organism. He must not be allowed to succeed. And I hope that everybody around him now understands that this is a war and that they started a long time ago. But they will not end until they get the president of the United States. Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley, and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me as we begin to close out yet another week. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. On social media, on Instagram, I'm at Monica Crowley underscore. And on Twitter and True Social, I'm at Monica Crowley. Also by email, I can be reached at Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. All right, next week on the show, we're going to be all over this presidential race with the latest. There's a couple of fascinating new polls that don't just do like top line numbers, like uh, Biden versus Trump and that sort of stuff. I mean, the horse race is fascinating, but essentially meaningless at this point. We're so far out. But there are some polls that have some interesting cross tabs and some interesting deep dives that show exactly what we have been talking about, which is that there is a critical realignment happening in this country. Democrats don't want it covered. Democrats don't want to deal with the reality, but things are shifting in the Republicans' favor, or I should say in the populist nationalist favor. There are all kinds of tectonic shifts going on. The Democrats know it, and they're very panicked about it. So next week, I want to begin to start taking off layers of this onion and get to kind of the crux of what we're talking about here, because there are some major shifts happening. We need to identify them and see them for what they are. Some of them are very good for us. Some of them not so good. Uh, so we've got some work to do. We're going to deal with some of that later today. But next week, I really want to do a deep dive into that. Plus, we're going to talk next week with the actor Ricky Schroeder about Hollywood and politics, plus a very important work he's doing now to counter just the straight-up evil that comes in the form of negative values that Hollywood pushes constantly through their control over the culture. He's also working to combat the harmful effects of pornography. So, uh, you know, when we talk about taking the, the country back, we got to take the culture back, not just the politics. And we're always so focused on the politics, but as Breitbart used to say, politics is downstream from culture. It's one of my favorite quotes ever, because it's not particularly obvious, but man, is it true. 
And that's why I want to feature people like Ricky Schroeder and Dean Kane and Kelsey Grammer and John Schneider and so many other celebrities who have been on the show and will continue to come on the show because we've got to take our culture back. And the only way we do it is by supporting stuff like Ricky Schroeder is doing, having these conversations, raising awareness of what our side is doing. So Ricky Schroeder is an important part of all of that, and he's going to be with us. The Champ, Silver Spoons, Lonesome Dove, incredible actor, and doing even more important work on the culture. So that is not to be missed. And we've got a couple of other really big things coming up next week and in the weeks ahead. So you're not going to want to miss a second. Today, we're going to talk to billionaire Scott Besant, who spent a good deal of his adult life. He's, he's a Wall Street legend. He's an investor legend. Uh, and he spent a good time of his career with the Soros family as the chief investment officer for the Soros family and their Soros investment fund which, you know, he was on the money side, he was not on the activism side, but the only reason you had an activism side is because they were getting a ton of money from the investing side to finance what they were doing, what they continued to do. He is no longer with them. He's had this Soros journey. He is now totally America first. He's also a brilliant mind on the economy, and he is going to be here later today to tell us about his personal story, but also to tell us where we are in the Biden economy, inflation, interest rates. Uh, is the Fed going to try to help Biden by cutting rates as we get into the late spring and summer, try to jazz the economy? Oh, hell no. Hell no. A political Fed? Mm, this is where we are. We're going to have that conversation with Scott Besson coming up. Fascinating guy. I've met him this week. Unbelievable. By the way, this week I went to a really interesting dinner hosted by Steve Moore and the Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and it was for Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard is an incredibly impressive person. She is going to join us on this show in the weeks ahead, she's got a new book coming out, so she will be here. I I think the world of her. We hit it off. She's going to be here coming up, so I cannot wait for that conversation. All right, first up today, the Monica Memo. As the saying goes from none other than Vladimir Lenin, who is the North Star for today's modern American left because they are all communists, so they all look to Lenin. So I want to quote Vladimir Lenin here. There are decades when nothing happens, and there are weeks when decades happen. This week, and specifically today, and certainly the days uh, coming up in front of us, are exactly that. They are when decades happen. We've got so much coming at us, particularly today. I want to get through a a bunch of these headlines, all kinds of things happening today. Decades are happening today, and decades are going to happen in the days and weeks ahead. First, this is Super Bowl weekend. I hope you enjoy it, family, friends, or alone. (laughs) I've been to many Super Bowl parties in my life, and I understand the premise Everybody gathers, you're with your friends, your family, you're hanging out. None of the calories count on Super Bowl Sunday, right? Pizza, nachos, wings, burgers, whatever is your favorite food, none of the calories count. I love that about Super Bowl Sunday, okay? So I've been to many a party. Uh, Parties are always fun. You're around people. It's always a good time. But if you're serious about the football, 
You do not want to be at a party. Come at me in the comments. Okay, fight me in my email, monicacrowleypodcast at gmail.com. If you are serious about the football game and you actually want to watch it, a party is not for you. At least this is what I have found because you are just, you're engrossed in these conversations. If you want to watch the game, now you're rude because people are trying to talk to you during the game and you got one eye on the game, one ear on the conversation. You're trying to respond like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, oh, cool, oh, what an issue. I don't want to hear about your grandma's foot surgery while I'm trying to watch the Super Bowl, okay? I just don't. I don't. I'm sorry for your grandma, but I don't want to hear it during the first quarter. I want to watch the game. I want to see the ads. I want to have fun and absorb the game. Anyway, I understand the appeal of parties, but am I wrong? Am I? Fight me in the email, monicacrowleypodcast at gmail.com. Tell me which you prefer. I'm not sure what I'm going to do this Sunday. I may end up going to a small gathering. We'll see. We'll see because I really love these people who have invited us, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, man. I, I, you know, I'm of two minds about it. And I'm not even a football fanatic. I enjoy football this time of year, the playoffs, the championship games, and the Super Bowl because this is when the game is being played at the highest levels. So I do enjoy it at this point. I also enjoy my friends, but I got to tell you, just leave me alone with my hot dog, my pizza, my nachos, all calorie free. Uh, there is a serious note here about the Super Bowl. If you are going to the Super Bowl, enjoy it. Have a blast. I've never been to one. It is on my bucket list, but be very careful because there are a couple of things here. First of all, wide open border wide open border for three years. So God knows what kind of terrorists are here. Could they be targeting the Super Bowl? Who knows? I hope to God not. Um, But you never know. We've got terrorists crawling all over this country, thanks to Joe Biden and Alejandro Mayorkas, who have left the border wide open now for three years. And we have had thousands of suspected terrorists come across the border, maybe more. Uh, We don't know. And we don't know who they are, where they are, what they intend to do. But, you know, big events like this, absolutely a target. But there are two other things here. Now, Joe Buck has come forward over the last couple of days and made like this cryptic prediction that something could happen at the Super Bowl. I don't know what he's talking about, and I have no idea what he knows. But he made this cryptic reference to something about the Super Bowl. And then Mayorkas came forward, and he's out there talking about Taylor Swift, who, by the way, now is totally overexposed. Okay, can we just have that conversation? Way too... When you are overexposed as a major celebrity, and no doubt she's an absolute superstar, but when you're that overexposed, there's always the inevitable backlash. So, you know, last week at the Grammys, God love her. She walked out with an armful of Grammys setting records. God love her. You know, she's talented. Go do your thing. Win as many awards as you can. That's great. But every weekend uh, in the football games, (laughs) right, on our screen and now at the Super Bowl after the Grammys, I just think she's going to need to chill a little bit. uh, And her publicist is named Tree Payne, not making that up, Tree Payne, who has done a brilliant job promoting Taylor and getting her to superstardom. Brilliant. I need Tree Payne. 
I need a tree pain in my life, okay? I think everybody could use a tree pain. But if tree pain is worth her salt, she's got to have a sense of what's going on here. And I have a feeling that's probably not because next up will be the engagement to Travis Kelsey and then the wedding. So, I mean, we're probably looking at another year of overexposure of Taylor Swift. But I digress. Alejandro Mayorkas, Mayorkas said yesterday... He started referring to Taylor Swift and the NFL and being at the Super Bowl and different kinds of maybe threats or situation. I I don't know. It's all very ambiguous between Mayorkas and Joe Buck and what they're trying to tell us here. I don't know. I hope to God nothing is going to happen. But if you're going, please stay frosty. Have your head on a swivel. Be aware of your surroundings. If you're anywhere near the Super Bowl, be aware of your surroundings. Again, I hope to God this is all nothing, and these are all precautionary, I hope. But the the terrorists are here. The enemy is within. The Super Bowl is a major target. Taylor Swift, all this conversation about being a PSYOP, I don't know. I don't know. But there are so many moving parts here, so just... Stay aware, situational awareness. Okay, that's number one. Number two, huge day at the U.S. Supreme Court. This is the day that the Supreme Court is hearing oral arguments about what Colorado did to President Trump. The Colorado Supreme Court essentially disqualified him from the ballot and everybody, including a lot of legal scholars on the left, are saying this is totally unconstitutional. So the Supreme Court decided to take up this case, and they are hearing the arguments today, reviewing the Colorado ballot access case to decide if states can remove President Trump from the ballot. So this is a huge thing. Uh, It has to do with the 14th Amendment and insurrection, etc. But here is just a reminder. Nobody, including President Trump, and the January 6th defendants, and everybody else involved in this huge January 6th uh, case, nobody has been accused of insurrection, except like in the media. But in legal terms, nobody, including President Trump, has been accused, tried, or convicted of insurrection. And this whole ballot access case is hanging on insurrection, that Trump inspired, incited an insurrection. And the January 6th folks, too, who are sitting behind bars three years later, they also, and the Supreme Court is going to hear that as well in a separate case. So all of this sort of hangs on the amendment and the interpretation of it and insurrection and what that means and does it apply to a president, etc. So uh, pray for President Trump. Oral arguments happening today at SCOTUS. Meanwhile, the left does what they always do very well, which is have a bunch of uh, protesters outside the Supreme Court with signs, screaming and yelling, Trump is a traitor, all this crap. Um, it, It doesn't have any effect on the SCOTUS judges, I would hope, but I don't think it does. Uh, But where's our side? Where's our side? Our side never has these kinds of armies that the left has when they throw a switch and suddenly you've got thousands of people in the streets, all with pre-made signs, all chanting, 
First of all, the left has standing armies anyway of college kids, students, uh, union folks, uh, hard left-wing activists. This is all Sololinsky. You know, create chaos, create the image of chaos, use it to intimidate and, and leverage over people making decisions. And it's all about power and control. But Sololinsky and the left, the communists, do this so well and have for a century. Get in the streets. Be loud. Go protest. Go try to intimidate. And our side does none of this because our side is at work, being productive members of society, raising families, going to school. So our side never has these kinds of standing armies. Left is all over SCOTUS today, screaming and yelling. Our side, crickets. So we will uh, keep a close eye on what happens at the Supreme Court today. But again, uh, pray for the president. Also, keep him in your prayers because today, or any day, uh, that New York judge who is out of central casting for Marxists, Judge Engeron, might give his verdict today. And, and the total fine in Trump's civil fraud case. He could also ban him from doing business in New York City and New York State in perpetuity. Strip him of his entire multi-billion dollar business empire that he spent his entire life building. Just one crazy Marxist judge going to strip away your life's work and your livelihood? Oh, hell no. Also unconstitutional. But keep in mind, guys, the process is the punishment. So whether it's Judge Anchoron or Jack Smith or the Colorado Supreme Court or any of these people, Letitia James, Fannie Willis, who's getting some from her side piece, who she hired for nearly a million bucks, all of these crazy communists, the process is the punishment in their mind. They don't care that they're going to get overturned. They don't care. You know, in the past, you'd have judges or prosecutors, and they'd keep one eye on their legacy, one eye on being overturned by higher courts, and what that would mean and and how it would reflect on them. Okay, they would always have a mind on that and be extra careful. Even if they handed down a controversial ruling, they'd always have one eye on how they'd be viewed in history. Now, no way, because they're revolutionaries. They don't care. They don't care. So while we hope and pray all of this crap will be overturned eventually, so for them, the process is the punishment for Trump. That's the whole objective. Okay, also today, the Nevada caucus is happening. Uh, Nevada is weird. It's a weird state because there was a primary on Tuesday this week where Trump was not on the ballot um, because the Republicans in that state do a caucus, they don't do a primary. So the Democrats ran their primary in Nevada. And then, and then the Republicans had like none of the above. They had Nikki Haley was on the primary ballot. Um, and then they had a bunch of other candidates and none of the above. And Nikki Haley lost to none of the above. Again, Trump not on that ballot. So she lost to none of the above, which is a pretty extreme achievement, don't you think? Um, the Nevada caucus, where Trump is on the ballot, that is today, he was leading at all these polls by like 50 points, so let's see what happens tonight there. But not a lot of suspense going on at the Nevada caucus. Uh, Trump put a lot of work into that state, so it will pay off. We will watch for that. Also today, 
this is what I mean about decades happening today. Um, today, Tucker Carlson is going to release his interview with Vladimir Putin. It's going to be on his website, tuckercarlson.com. He is also going to release it on X slash Twitter at Tucker Carlson. So I cannot wait to watch this interview. It is going to be absolutely fascinating. And because it's being released later in the day than when I'm doing this show, can't cover it because I don't know what's going to be said, but we will cover this next week as well. And I will give you my insights into this right here on this show. I will say that the headlines about this, that the left is in absolute meltdown. The deep state is in so much panic. You want to know how much panic they're in over this Tucker-Putin interview? They actually wheeled out deep state menace and two-time presidential loser Mrs. Clinton to try to discredit Tucker Carlson and this interview. Listen. I mean, he's like a puppy dog. You know, he somehow has, after having been fired from so many outlets in the United States, he, uh, I would not be surprised uh, if he emerges with a contract with outlet because he is a useful idiot. He says things that are not true. He parrots Vladimir Putin's uh, pack of lies about Ukraine. Uh, so I don't see why Putin wouldn't give him an interview because through him, he can, you know, continue to lie about what his, you know, objectives are in Ukraine and, and uh, you know, what he expects to see happen. It's really quite sad that not just somebody like Tucker Carlson, who has, as I said, been fired so many times because he seems unable to, you know, correlate his uh, reporting with the truth, um, but also because it's a sign that there are people in this country right now who are like a fifth column for Vladimir Putin. And why? I don't know. I mean, why are certain Republicans throwing their lot in? Why are, you know, other Americans basically believing uh, Putin? Why did Trump believe Putin more than our 11 intelligence agencies? Hmm, I don't know. Do you have a working I theory on that? I do have a working theory. Absolute clown show. <laughs> Mrs. Clinton, who's a deep state monster, trying to tell us, well, Tucker is not the voice that we need here in all of this. Tucker, don't, don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. He's been let go by so many outlets. Mrs. Clinton lost the presidency not once but twice. First to Barack Obama, secondly to Donald Trump. And she's out there talking to us about credibility? I don't think so. But this tells you the deep state is in an absolute state. It is beside itself because they don't know what Tucker has asked. They don't know what Putin has said. And again, as Tucker has said, an interview like this carries a lot of risks. You know, Putin is a master propagandist, so you don't know if he's telling you the truth or what he's going to say. And are you giving one of the world's worst bad guys a platform? Yeah, but this is what journalists do. They do give bad guys a platform in order to try to get information and insight into the bad guy's thinking, into his his or her actions. This is what journalists have done since the beginning of time and, and what they're supposed to do. Christiane Amanpour, Barbara Walters, Diane Sawyer, they have all sat down with the world's dictators and had these kind of conversations. So all of this is just, it, it's completely disingenuous, but it is a sign of their panic and their, their attempt to try to discredit all of this. Here are some of the headlines, okay? 
Rolling Stone, Tucker Carlson announces interview with Putin. He's praised the Russian leader for years. Tucker Carlson is in Russia to interview Putin. He's already doing the bidding of the Kremlin, according to CNN. Here's the UK Independent. Tucker Carlson interviews Putin in Moscow after years of anti-Ukraine vitriol. Here's British Sky News, Tucker Carlson. Kremlin confirms Putin gave interview to controversial media personality. Tucker is controversial, but the pathological liars at CNN are not, right? Uh, Let's see. Here's the Daily Beast. Kremlin cronies. Putin-Tucker interview will blow up U.S. election. Here's Mediaite. Morning Joe skewers Tucker Carlson by reminding him that Evan Gershowitz is in a gulag for reporting on Russia. Here are others. Uh, Here, another Daily Beast. Kremlin. We reject all Western media, but Tucker Carlson is different. Well, yeah. Tucker is different because he's the only one out there telling the truth. Beside us here on this show and some others. But yeah, the Kremlin is right that Tucker is different. Because the imperial media is a pack of pathological liars, deep state mouthpieces, and and working hand in glove with the security state and with big tech to suppress free speech. Tucker is free of all of that. So yeah, he's different. And these headlines continue, and uh, like the New Republic, of course, Tucker Carlson is in Russia to interview Putin. So they have their panties in a twist over this. And once I see it, uh, next week we're going to be all over it because I have an insight that is going to blow your mind. I have an insight into this that is going to blow your mind, but I want to hear Tucker's conversation with Putin before I bring it to you. Okay, so next Tuesday, we're going to be all over this. You're not going to want to miss this show here on Tuesday. Okay, but why is it that they're so upset about this? They could give a crap about Putin and Russia. Our main enemy is China anyway. They're worried because they don't want the truth exposed. And it goes back to all kinds of stuff that most Americans have forgotten about, including the DNC emails back in 2016 and Seth Rich and that whole thing and Julian Assange. And remember the Democrats blamed the Russians for hacking into the DNC servers and getting those DNC emails that exposed so much. They blame Russian hackers for that. Well, Putin might have something to say about that, that it wasn't, in fact, Russia who got those emails, that somebody else got those emails and passed it off to Julian Assange and, and, and others. I, there's a whole mystery there. But once again, Russia became the dumping ground for the Democrats, the left's lies. And we, don't, we still don't know the truth about this. Will we get the truth from Putin? Who knows? Again, he's a master propagandist, but he could raise the curtain on a lot of what the deep state, Mrs. Clinton, her campaign, the left, the imperial media, what they were all in on in 2016 to try to stop Donald Trump back then. And it continues through this day. Then, of course, it like morphed into the Russia hoax. Ask yourself why. Why did they settle on Russia? Why didn't they blame China for this or Iran or some other nefarious force? Why did they go after Russia? Why are they still on Russia? Why is Russia continually the dumping ground for their lies?
Maybe in this interview, we are going to find out. And I promise you, next week on the show, we're going to be all over this in ways that you probably have not heard. All right? Uh, also, this week, again, decades happening in this week, that so-called border bill met a grisly death, thank God, and only because we the people killed it. It's you guys, it's Steve Bannon, it's the War Room audience, this audience, the America First audience that stood up and said, uh, not just no, but hell no to the so-called border bill, which wasn't even about the U.S. border. Everything that they put in front of you has an Orwellian name because they know if they told you the truth, you'd reject it and you'd know what they were really all about. So the Inflation Reduction Act had nothing to do with that and actually set inflation on the collision course with the U.S. economy and put us in this inflationary spiral where you're paying 30 bucks for a carton of eggs. That was a Green New Deal Marxist spending bill that they slapped on an Orwellian name. And this border bill, too. This is the invasion approval bill. But it had more to do with Ukraine's border than our border because this whole thing was an excuse. It was a vehicle to get $60 billion more to Ukraine. So they dressed it up as a border bill. They dressed it up with aid to Israel. And they dressed it up with some minor spending for the border, which actually is just for processing more illegals coming in the country. But they, they put lipstick on a pig and hoped you wouldn't notice. But we did notice. And we killed it. You guys killed it. Because now we are activists. Charlie Kirk reported on Twitter, X, that McConnell and Schumer actually have a congressional delegation, a CODEL, set in two weeks to go to Kiev to celebrate the additional $60 billion going to Zelensky, which they have not passed yet. Now, they may try to strip that out and do it as a standalone bill for Ukraine. I don't know what they're going to do. But the fact that they had scheduled this trip, CODELs take a long time to schedule, especially if you're going into a hot zone like Ukraine in the middle of a war. It takes a long time for the logistics to be ironed out and for a trip like this to be scheduled with security and flights and all of that stuff. So they had been working on this a long time. I don't know if they're still going to go, probably, so that they can kiss the ass of Zelensky? Probably. But they had this organized because the two of them got together, the uni party got together and said, we're going to deliver Joe Biden his war money no matter what. We're going to deliver Zelensky his war money no matter what. Again, they don't give a flying crap about the U.S. border. The U.S. border was just the vehicle to try to pull the wool over everybody's eyes to get Zelensky and Biden their war money so that they can then launder it and get richer. Finally this week, again, decades happening in, in days and weeks, in another victory for we the people, RNC chairwoman Rana Romney McDaniel will resign after the South Carolina primary on February 24th. This is excellent news. I mean, her legacy is now multiple losing election cycles and nearly bankrupting the party. 
So girl, bye. Don't let the door hit you. And here's a broader message, not just to her, but to any Republican. If you can't fight this fight the way we need this fight to be fought, get out. Get out. We have no time to coddle you or babysit you or try to educate you. If you don't get what the fight is about by now, then get out. The big question here is who replaces her? It cannot be a lateral move. You cannot go back to another GOP tool or all of this is for naught. Okay, we got rid of Kevin McCarthy. You got Speaker Mike Johnson in there now. And, you know, I don't know what the story is. He hasn't been great. He's a good man, but he hasn't been great because he doesn't know the mechanics of how to run that institution and crack the whip. Maybe he's too nice for the job. You need a real a-hole in there. I'm sorry, but you do. Nancy Pelosi ran that house with an iron fist and got everything the Democrats wanted. She had everybody in line. She did not call a vote if she did not know what the outcome was going to be or if the outcome was dicey. She cracked the whip and got it done. Mike Johnson just... He, he's either learning, steep learning curve here, or he is not up to the job. I don't know. So we got to handle that, but also the RNC position cannot go, cannot reach for another GOP tool. You got to have somebody in there who is America first, who is loyal to that cause in order to restore the RNC to where the base is. You also need somebody in there who will support America first candidates and not try to undermine them in favor of establishment tools. Rana was doing that no more. So you can't replace Rana with another Rana. You also need somebody who is a great fundraiser. And so you need somebody America first to restore trust so that people will begin to send the RNC money again. This is one of the big reasons why the RNC is essentially broke because nobody wanted to hand the money. Why? So Rana could go and spend it on flowers for Republican tools? No. You need somebody who can restore trust and is a great fundraiser. You also need somebody to rebuild the RNC infrastructure and who has their eyes firmly set on what we need to win in November. Voter registration. All the great stuff that Scott Pressler is doing out there. Get out the vote operations. Ballot harvesting and ballot chasing. Getting on top of early voting and getting that message out. Election integrity to make sure they can't steal it again. All of this stuff, you need an RNC chair who's going to be on top of it and aggressively doing this stuff. And we only have nine months. So do not give me a Rana 2.0. Give me an America first aggressive person to handle all of this. That's what we need. Okay, so... A lot of stuff coming at us, like I said, decades happening in these couple of days. So buckle up, strap in, and be safe. All right, let's hit a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk to billionaire Scott Bessent about not only his time with the Soros and how he came to be America first, but also where we are in this economy and where we are going. You need to hear this conversation. Sit tight. The erosion of our food supply is a pressing concern in today's world. The prevalence of diseases and the number of Americans getting sick continues to rise. 
Because of the practices associated with commercial farming, the use of fertilizers, chemical sprays, and the proliferation of bioengineered foods, we deserve better. We deserve food that will nourish our bodies, not break them down. And Freedom Farms believes that too. Straight from beautiful upstate New York, Freedom Farms, founded and operated by great American patriots, are leading the charge in restoring faith in food production by providing an alternative that is natural, healthy, and unadulterated. The farm raises grass-fed, grass-finished beef, pasture-raised pork, and free-range pastured chickens. But the best part about all of this is that all of their meats are 100% vaccine-free and hormone-free. And did I mention, you can even buy up to a whole cow and pig. Delicious and healthy meats processed at a small, family-owned butcher shop and delivered right to your front door. It's time we take control of our food supply. Check out Freedom Farms today by visiting wearefreedomfarms.com. And don't forget to use code MONICA25 for $25 off your first order. Wearefreedomfarms.com, code MONICA25 for $25 off your very first order. Check out my friends at Freedom Farms for the very best meat you will ever have. WeAreFreedomFarms.com, code MONICA25. Okay, guys, welcome back. I am so delighted to welcome to the show a true business superstar who is now making headlines for all the right reasons. Scott Besant is the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of KeySquare Capital Management, That is a New York-based investment partnership that he founded back in 2015. Before that, Scott was Chief Investment Officer for Soros Fund Management, and yes, that Soros. And Soros Fund Management was the investment vehicle for the Soros family and their foundations. He did that between 2011 and 2015. He's also been and continues to be a well-known investor in the macro space uh, for over two decades. He made headlines last week, and I saw those headlines, and I said, I want to talk to Scott. He joins us now. Scott, welcome. Good, Monica, thank you. And I do want to clarify, uh, we, we moved the firm out of New York in 2021. So we're now based in Greenwich, Connecticut, Charleston, South Carolina, my hometown, and uh, London. So well, we are no longer in New York. Good for you for leaving New York City and taking uh, all of this money that you oversee with you out of New York, because New York, as we all know, is an absolute disaster. We need serious change of leadership in this state and this city. So good for you, Scott. And I want to tell the audience, you know, we met for the first time uh, the other night. We were both invited to a dinner for Tulsi Gabbard, who is very, very impressive. And Scott and I sat next to each other. We had a lovely time speaking, and I was really looking forward to this talk. So great to meet you in person and over the podcast waves. Good, good, to, good to meet you. Uh, obviously, you have a great reputation, and you are better in person. 
Oh, very kind of you, Scott. Thank you. Well, very happy to have you here. And we've got a lot to cover with you. So let's get right into it. I think based on the introduction, I think the audience would love to know your connection to the Soros family, George Soros, the uh, foundations, the Soros fund management, which you oversaw as chief investment officer. How did you come to work with the Soros family? Sure. So I joined, actually, I was there twice. So I joined when I was quite young, back in 1988, and was there through 2000. I left, uh, did some other things in the investing world, was an adjunct professor at Yale teaching the history of financial crises, which I think is, this is an interesting moment to have a catalog of you know, previous financial crises. And then uh, George asked me to come back in 2011 as the CIO. And, you know, Monica, I, I would emphasize that uh, you know, we, he and I don't see eye to eye on politics, but, uh, you know, I was given the uh, full authority in terms of the investment process. Uh, I had nothing to do with the uh, Soros Foundations. Uh, you know, I will tell you, in the early days when I was there, uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, Soros Foundations were small, and they were limited to uh, taking fax machines behind the Iron Curtain and trying to help Soviet, Hungarian, Romanian, Czech dissidents they, uh, you know, bring down the Iron Curtain. So, you know, obviously the mission of the foundations has morphed and... You know, uh, they've come to the U.S. You know, it's interesting you say that because I remember that at the time, like in the early to mid-90s, after the wall came down and the Soviet Union fell apart, I remember, you know, at the time I was working with former President Nixon and he'd get copies of The Economist and he and I would go over certain articles that were being published. And that's when I remember first seeing the name George Soros. And it was connected to one foundation that he had called the Open Society uh, Foundation and that they were doing exactly what you're saying, which is that they were getting into Eastern Europe and they were trying to liberalize, or at least that's what (laughs) we were told. I don't know whether it was actually happening. But the storyline was that the Open Society Foundation was getting in there and helping the liberalization, small l, liberalization of Eastern Europe in the old uh, Soviet Union to try to get these people um, attuned to democracy, representative government, free market capitalism, to try to build the institutions that they would need to carry out those things. Um, And then over the last 40 plus years, it's really morphed into something far more radical. So you were on the investment side, you were not on the political side, but while you were there both times, did you see that evolution happening? Uh, Yeah, I mean, look, I I knew what I read in the paper. I I could see it from afar. Uh, I haven't spoken to Mr. Soros since uh, December, I think it was December 2016, uh, right after President Trump won the first time, so you know we we've been out of touch for eight nine years. 
Okay. So, but while you were there, did you see any of the evolution away from what at least was sold as kind of a a noble uh, objective of liberalizing Eastern Europe and getting them on their feet in terms of representative uh, government, free market capitalism into something else? Did you see that happening? Sure. Look, I, I, you know, I saw that on the ground in the 90s. And again, um, I think that there was a mission change once the foundation started uh, advocating in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's probably uh, right as well. So uh, you have this background um, in, in investment. You, go, you leave there in 2015 and you start your own firm, Key Square Capital Management. And of course, throughout all of this time, you become a legend in finance, which is another reason I wanted to talk to you. Let's talk about the reason you made headlines last week, Scott, which is that, that you put out uh, this information that suggests that investors are anticipating a Trump win in November. Tell us why. Sure. So um, the really, what I said, Monica, was the, the market is going up because Donald Trump is ahead in the polls. And that is a two-pronged reason is one is you know, we finance people at the end of the day we we want to seem sophisticated but we're we're pretty simple and you know we we tend to anchor towards things that have worked in the past uh, they'll work again in the future so with Donald Trump ahead in the polls the market the stock markets are anchoring on November 5th and you know, what would November 5th mean a victory for Donald Trump it would mean that the Trump tax cuts, which expire in 2025, uh, would be reinstated. It would mean the light touch regulation. It would mean the increased energy production in the U.S., crude and net gas. And hopefully it would mean the, some kind of a cessation of all the hostilities going on abroad, which also tend to uh, rock the market. On the other side, um, my reasoning is that since 1952, when there is an incumbent running, the stock market has never gone down, never gone down. And that's because uh, the incumbent hasn't always won, but the stock market doesn't go down. And that's because the incumbent White House controls a lot of the economic levers and they pull them as hard as they can to try to help their candidates stay at 1600. So the other person who was looking at these polls, there are market people looking at them, and Janet Yellen is looking at these polls. And she is uh, pumping as much liquidity into the system as she can. She is trying to create the best economic conditions for Biden victory. So the more... President Trump stays ahead in the polls, the more she will keep her foot on the accelerator. So right now we have this nirvana uh, where Trump is ahead in the polls, Yellen is pumping like crazy, and you know, that, that's great conditions for a stock market rally. 
You know, we just got uh, the latest GDP numbers and they indicate, what was it, 5% growth or 3% growth? It was some like significant number. Uh, and this just came out over the last like week or so. But it's almost all government spending. I mean, I would grow too, Scott, if you pumped eight to $10 trillion into me over the last three years, right? So it's almost all government spending. There really is no private sector growth. It's The GDP number is very deceptive in that sense. Is that correct? Uh, that, that is correct. And, you know, Monica, that, that's how we ended up with you know, what I call the great inflation of 21 and 22 is uh, the, the CARES Act was passed and we were in the midst of COVID and no one really knew where you were going. Households were in trouble. Uh, you know, that was what I would classify as necessary spending. When Biden came into office, after that, we passed the three other spending bills that over $3 trillion, trillion with the T, in spending that goose the economy and is still goosing the economy to this day because a lot of that, you know, whether it's the Chip, CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which is misnamed, it's really a green, the investment bank or green, the lending operation, you know, those are all still pushing the economy. So, you know, with, with all this stimulus in the economy, uh, you know, it's going to do well. But Contrary to what you see from you know, Paul Krugman in the New York Times, Alan Blinder, former vice chairman of the, the, the Fed, uh, Americans aren't stupid. And in, you know, they've been berating Americans. Don't you understand the American people, working class people? Don't you understand how good the economy is? Uh, you should be grateful. Well, you know, they know in, in economics there's certain, something called equivalents. And the, the way your listeners should think about it is you know, if you make a big credit card purchase, you know you're going to have to pay it down. And your future spending will be lower. And the American people intuitively sense that we have spent this money and that there is a reckoning coming, whether it will be higher interest rates, higher taxes. So, yes, we are, you know, I call this the anabolic steroid economy. You know, you look great on the outside, you're muscular, you feel good. On the inside, you know, your liver is being poisoned, your reproductive organs, they are shrinking. So, you know, that's what's going on with the economy. Headline looks great, medium to long term, not a healthy equilibrium. There was a lot there to unpack that you just laid out, Scott. So thank you for that. Um, let, me, let me start with this. We talked about the most recent GDP numbers. We have seen since Joe Biden became president that routinely those GDP numbers get revised down. So they get a pretty good headline number. Everybody jumps on it. It's reported everywhere. And then several months later, you get the final number and it's revised way down. Same thing with unemployment numbers as well. So the Bureau of, Labor, uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics also putting out numbers that weeks or months go by and they're revised way down. I think, um, and I, I could be a little off on this, but I think over the last 
a year or so, it's been revised down by like a million jobs. So again, they get the headline number, but you know, way after the fact when nobody is paying attention, the real numbers are reported and they are um, to, to the tune of a million fewer than what was originally reported. So uh, can we really trust the official numbers on the economy coming out of this administration? They have been suspect from the beginning. So I, I, I would say it's, it's difficult. Numbers are noisy. Uh, in general, studies have shown they, they do get revised downward uh, more under Democratic administrations. They get revised upwards when no one's looking under Republican administrations. But you know, in general, I, I think the, uh, that's not really the civil servants with their thumb on the scale. What's important here, Monica, and you know, I'd like for your listeners to focus on this, is we are running these deficits with a 3.7% unemployment rate. We are at full employment. We have a strong economy. Why are we running these deficits? You know, in the Keynesian model, the, you are supposed to use deficit spending when the economy is on the rocks. You are supposed to use deficit spending to pull yourself out of a recession or a depression, you know, a la 2008. So, you know, th this is something completely new. It really is. I mean, if you can't trust the official numbers coming out of an administration, and I know what you're saying, generally they're revised down and there are always revisions and there's always noise in the data. That's true. But this has been a distinct pattern with the Biden administration and it's just, to me, it's corrupt. I can say that. Maybe you don't want to go there. I understand that. But, you know, you understand a month or two, but this is a pattern. Yeah, you know, you were in the Treasury. You, you know how the bureaucracy works better than anybody. So I'm not going to say it, but I will defer to your expertise. <laughs> well, that is a very diplomatic way of saying it. So thank you. <laughs> thank you, Scott. I will say that under Biden, these numbers are corrupt and you should not believe the headline number, the initial number coming at you. They're trying to make the economy look better than it is. Um, in terms of interest rates, you mentioned those. I know a lot of people are, um, you know, suffering under high interest rates, can't really do what they want, start a small business, buy a home, buy a car, etc. Money is a lot more expensive now. And that is a direct result of the fact that Biden and the Democrats pumped trillions of dollars into the economy. You can literally see, guys, that inflation began to take off the moment Biden signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act, which, as Scott aptly points out, was a green energy carnival of spending rather than an actual Inflation Reduction Act. So from that moment, March of 2021, you can see inflation begin to take off at that very moment. I think Donald Trump left with little to no inflation, handed Biden a, a strong, growing economy out of COVID, which was no small feet, and Biden turned around and blew it all up on purpose. Um, so getting back to the Fed, Scott, talk to us a little bit about how you think the head of the Fed, Jerome Powell, is looking at this economy now, looking at the inflation numbers that we're getting, the road ahead in terms of interest rates. What can we expect? So Monica, I in previous interviews, people had asked me, they said, you know, we know we know Treasury is a political post and 
you know, Janet Yellen is priming the pump. Uh, what about the Fed? And previously, I had said that I think the Fed has more of an implicit bias than an explicit bias. You know, most of the Federal Reserve employees are in Washington. And, you know, if we just extrapolate a bit, I think Washington, D.C. is 91 percent Democrat, 9 percent Republican. So let's just assume you know, that there, there is a bias there. You know, we had two extraordinary events from Fed leadership in the past few years that were a bit disquieting is during the 2016 campaign, Lel Brainerd, the president's current NEC chair, you know, his number one economic advisor broke with all, all protocol and donated to Hillary Clinton. And then during the last presidential election cycle, Bill Dudley, the president of the New York City Fed, Federal Reserve Bank, came out and said the Fed should raise interest rates to keep Donald Trump out of office. But leave that aside is Fed Chair Jerome Powell on Sunday evening gave an interview on 60 Minutes. And I actually thought it was a highly political interview. The 60 Minutes interview, interviewer asked him, the, you know, he was given the reasons for inflation. And the interviewer rightly said, well, wasn't there quite a bit of government spending? And he said, well, you know, there was the CARES Act and it was needed. But Powell didn't bring up the other three spending bills, which, you know, Monica, as you said, the, uh, you know, over $3 trillion, and that's when inflation really took off. Mm-hmm. So you know, I thought it was quite biased to kind of gaslight the American public and not talking about the Biden spending. Can you talk to us a little bit, Scott, about how dangerous it is to have a Federal Reserve, which is completely political? The Fed is supposed to be apolitical. Okay, that was the original design of it, with a dual mandate of prices, maintaining price stability, and maximum employment in the country. Two missions. That's it. Now you've got the Fed focused on climate change, global warming. They're involved in all kinds of other social justice issues, etc. You got the head of the Fed giving interviews where he's getting political. I mean, how dangerous to the U.S. economy and to the average American is that? Well, you know, I'm not going to comment on that, but let's let's just look at their record. Is over this cycle, it was abysmal. They failed the American people, and uh, it is the American workers and the American people who are going to have to pay. Is uh, inflation has outstripped real wages, you know, household consumables, you know, whether it's food, rent, they uh, are way above the mean inflation level. So you know, that's why. Even with these strong growth numbers, the American public feels they are buying less with the same amount as they did in 2020. And it's uncomfortable. We have 3.7% unemployment and we have record food bank usage. That just tells you, you know, I, I actually stopped by a food bank and I was asking someone about it. And they said, well, a lot of people come in and they top up their grocery carts. So 
They, you know, they want to have the same amount that they had pre-inflation, and they'll go to the grocery store, spend the amount that they have, and then they'll come to us for canned goods or something like that. So, you know, again, it, it's something we haven't seen before. Maximum food bank usage at 3.7% unemployment. It really is stunning. And the disconnect, there's a political disconnect, there's an economic disconnect. And this is why, in large part, you got Donald Trump in 2015, elected in 2016. This is why he remains a massive figure on the national stage and likely to be the next president once again, because he spoke to those people you're just talking about, Scott. He spoke to the forgotten men and women and said, when I am in charge, you are forgotten no more. Your economic uncertainties, your your economic dislocation is now my problem, and I will take care of that for you, rather than the globalists and and the uniparty elites that only take care of themselves. I mean that that is, you know, the the critical policy part of Donald Trump's success. And look, Donald Trump brought the U.S. economy back not once but twice. First time when he first came in after eight years of sort of a stagnant economy under uh, Barack Obama, brought the economy roaring back then. And then after COVID, an unprecedented crisis, he brought the U.S. economy back a second time. So to my mind, all Donald Trump has to say is, look, man, I did it twice before. I'm going to do it a third time. Here we go. Yeah, and look, I'm not going to make an election prediction, and I want to emphasize that, you know, I, I am, my Trump rally statement is based on, we study history, we try to imagine the future, we analyze where we are in the present. You know, that's all a financial analysis. But, you know, what I will say is that, you know, things for the middle class, you know, we can see it from the polling do seem much more uncomfortable under President Biden. You know, you're seeing a whole generation, millennials, 40, 45 and under, believe that they will never be able to own a home. And, you know, that is mortgage rates have skyrocketed. And that is the government crowding out home buyers. These government deficits... The money's got to come from somewhere, and they push up interest rates, and you know they're crowd, crowding out home buyers, crowding out you know, people who want to start businesses. Yeah, exactly right. And it's all government all the time. We've got a leviathan. It is a leviathan of a government that is involved in every single aspect of our lives and crowding out average Americans and their ability to achieve and realize the American dream. It's absolutely disgusting. Um, speaking of a an increasingly political Fed, the conventional wisdom, which a lot of times is wrong, so you feel free to correct this, but is that the Fed is not going to raise interest rates in March, but May, in April or May, you know, later in the spring, they may start cutting. Um, First of all, from an economic standpoint, is that a wise thing to do, if in fact that's the case? Secondly, can it, it will be perceived as Powell and the Fed trying to juice the economy to help Biden's prospects in November? Does the Fed, in your view, care about being perceived as political or helping one candidate over another? Well, I I don't think they want to be perceived as political, but if you act in a political way, you are political. Mm-hmm. 
And the Fed started easing financial conditions in November. Uh, I think that Jerome Powell is willing to have a stock market bubble, which my my letter said you know we're likely to have. And I think that he's not worried about strong growth. And as long as the inflation numbers mechanically come in, which I think they will, you know, these, these are the very nuanced, convoluted numbers that don't really reflect what's happening in people's day-to-day lives. But, you know, there's something called the PCE. And you know, if that comes in anywhere near two, I think he's chomping at the bit to cut given their previous track record and you know the the real failure here to the american people in 21 and 22 that i don't know why they are so confident i don't know why he would cut but he is going to cut it's going to be very interesting to see okay as part of this mix um if Donald Trump, or let me rephrase, when Donald Trump becomes president again, you know, I remember right after the 2016 election, literally the next day, there was a stock market rally, all the things that you're laying out for after November this year. But back in 2016, same thing. It was an immediate psychological turnaround where people said, we are done with the socialist Barack Obama. We've got a real capitalist coming in as president, a businessman. He's going to have a whole array of pro-growth economic policies from tax cuts to regulatory relief, fairer trade deals, opening our great energy sector. And he did deliver a booming economy. So the psychology immediately after the election was, let's go, we're off to the races. And that's what you're saying is already starting to happen here as investors in the market start to calculate in, fold into the market an expectation of a uh, presidential win on the part of Donald Trump. We can only hope that that's going to be the case. But let me ask you this about... Um, about the $34 trillion national debt, which is a huge wet blanket on everything, on economic growth. I don't care if you've got Donald Trump back in there. We are going to have to deal with this burgeoning national debt sooner rather than later because the laws of economics are hard and fast, and we are about to hit the wall, and it is going to be very painful when we do. So unless and until we get government spending under control and can bring down annual deficits as well as the overall national debt, uh, we're in. We're really in for it, Scott. Can you describe to us the kind of economic pain that we're all going to face if this government, our government, our elected leaders on all sides, do not stop the spending? Yeah, is so. This, this is actually what I used to teach at Yale: the history of financial crises. And Monica, what I can tell you is that you know, prognosticators will tell you that they, they are impossible to predict. Well, I, I disagree with that. Is, you know, a little bit of common sense, a little, little bit of prudence, a lot of risk management, and you can see what's coming. And I think people don't want to stop the spending, and I hope we don't have to hit the wall. But I can tell you that uh, whoever wins, whether it's Trump or Biden, 2025 could be a tough year. 
you know, there's going to be not much gas left in the tank after the way we've been spending here. Um, you know, we'll see what happens with interest rates. And um, there, there's just not a lot of not a lot of room here when you're spending. You know, you're in the middle of a boom and you're spending into the boom. You know, it's it's the craziest thing I've ever seen is you know, in Grand Prix driving, you drive with both feet because you want the, you know, the car to go really fast around the turns. You're pushing on the gas pedal and you're pushing on the brake at the same time. And I've been doing this a long time. And in my career, I've never seen this is, you know, in 22, 23, Federal Reserve is raising interest rates. And the Biden administration, so they're putting on the brakes, and the Biden administration is slamming the pedal to the metal on the gas. And, you know, there's not going to be any fuel in the tank, and we, we will have to have a reckoning. And, you know, I, I hope President Trump, if he comes in, the, uh, you know, we'll come up with some supply-side solutions. Uh, you know, the, uh, the dinner we were at last night, was sponsored by the Committee for Prosperity, Steve Moore. Steve Moore thinks we could grow our way out of this debt with some pro-growth policies. And I do think that that is still possible, but it is a narrow path. Yeah. And, and what, I, what I do know is that, you know, hopefully we can have a supply-side solution and restrain spending. Lel Brainerd, President Biden's chief financial advisor in the White House has already told us that they, the Democrats, will not pass an extension of the Trump tax cuts and will hike taxes on corporations and individuals making over $400,000. So, you know, they, they have already made up their mind that there is no supply side solution, that there is no the expenditure solution, they're coming out swinging on taxes and the market's not going to like that. Which is, you know, a clear recipe for further um, destroying the economy and crushing it, which of course is their objective. So it's not a big surprise, but look, there's going to be pain no matter what, as you say, 2025 and beyond, there's going to be pain whether they continue spending out of control and we hit the wall or whether they are forced by the laws of economics to begin cutting spending, there is going to be pain. But you better take the pain sooner rather than later. You better take it while you still have some control over the situation rather than being forced to do it in an abject economic uh, fiscal monetary crisis, which is where we're headed, unfortunately, because you don't see a lot of political courage. Uh, You see a lot of uh, profligate spending, but not a lot of political courage to do what's necessary. I think Donald Trump has that courage, and I think, uh, you know, he understands the moment this time around for sure and so i i think you know we're going to need a change in leadership uh but we may hit the wall first monica thanks for bringing this up because it's so important that i i have a piece that i hope to get published in the next week or two and it the the gist of the piece is that high deficits and high debt are a national security threat to the united states Mm -hmm. if if you are China, we are playing into their hands by running up these debts. Because at a point, 
our debt service will be more than our expenditure on defense. There is, you know, we need to modernize our Navy. We need to the, uh, you know, have a big reboot in our defense technology. There is no money available for that if interest expense is eating up our budget. And you know, just to emphasize your point and emphasize my point that you know, markets are very dynamic things, the OMB and the CBO projections, you know, the deficit projections we see are very linear in terms of projecting the interest rates. A 1% rise in the interest rates is another trillion dollars per year in debt service. Mm. That is the size of our defense budget. It's uh, it's so stunning and outrageous. And to people who believe in uh, MME, modern uh, monetary theory, MMT rather, um, that deficits don't matter and you can continue printing money. Well, we all know the lessons of history. You continue to print money and you're in the Weimar Republic with hyper, hyperinflation. So if you think it's bad now, paying 30 bucks for a dozen eggs, just wait for hyperinflation, Right. Yeah, is look, Monica, a friend of mine lived in Argentina during the their hyperinflation, and he said they used to run out and buy groceries in the morning because they were more expensive in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no price stability, which is one of the, the Fed's two main pillars uh, to take care of. But they're too busy, like Janet Yellen at Treasury, wandering off into the weeds of climate change to be focused on their core missions. It's all just so completely infuriating, and you're exactly right. This is a pre- predictable and preventable crisis. You can see the train wreck coming. It's right there on the tracks, and yet nobody is lifting a finger to avoid that train wreck. And indeed, they're actively making it happen with these, uh, you know, the continuation of all these economic policies. Um, Scott, before we let you go, just one final question for you. Are you optimistic? Can you leave us with a little bit of hope here? Sure. Is, um, look, the, the American economy is wonderfully adaptable. And I think the American people, American business, you know, we want, we don't want heavy regulation. We want guidelines. And if we could get a government and government policies that would reignite the private sector, not the government sector, the, you know, energy independence, especially with natural gas, then, you know, I, I, I could be very, very optimistic is, you know, I think there are a lot of easy fixes here and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't at this point, if we can start the, you know, Monica, if you and I are talking the next February and some of these plans have been put into place, it's not too late to avoid the painful outcome. Mm. If, if we were talking in two or four years, my sense is that we will be in the soup and no one will be having you know, good economic outcomes. Mm. 
Well, we hope and pray for the best, and that's why we're going to work around the clock from now until November to get that change of leadership and elect Donald Trump and Republicans, America Firsters, all across the board, because we cannot afford one more second of this, never mind another presidential term of this kind of economic, uh, fiscal, monetary catastrophe. So, well, thank you for leaving us with that notion of hope, Scott. We really appreciate it. His name is Scott Besant. He is CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Key Square Capital Management. And it's been an absolute delight to have you here, Scott, even though the, the news isn't always so great. But you have been just a voice of reason, and we so appreciate it. Good. Monica, I look forward to coming back when we have some new views and hopefully some good news. Indeed. Where can people find you on the web and social media? Uh, we, we keep a very low profile. The best way to find us is to ask you to have us back. Okay, another big show, guys, right? Thank you so much for joining me and for checking out our great sponsors. We're all really grateful for that. That is what keeps this show going, so we appreciate you and our sponsors so much. I want you to have a fantastic weekend. Enjoy the Super Bowl with those you love or by yourself, if that's what you prefer, or with one other person, a significant other or something. <laughs> that's like basically where I am. Remember, Calories do not count, so load up with those nachos and wings. Enjoy every moment of it. We will see you right back here next week, where again, decades are going to happen. This episode of the Monica Crowley Podcast was produced by Bayhockle Entertainment, LLC.